So uh, if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts 8, where today uh, we're going to look at a passage which provides the model for how we can bring hope, peace, and joy to the communities in which we live. It's a text that's going to show us uh, the purpose of the City Hope Foundation and uh, what we're trying to accomplish through it. So Acts chapter 8, we're going to look at the first eight verses uh, today, and we'll pick up in verse 1. Follow along as I read. Luke tells us this, and Saul approved of his execution. Saul, of course, uh, is the soon-to-be apostle Paul, but before he becomes an apostle, he is a great persecutor of the church, and here Luke says that uh, he is the one who gave approval to the execution of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Stephen's story is told in chapters 6 and 7, and since we skipped over those chapters, let me just quickly summarize them uh, for you. Stephen was one of uh, a group of six men that the apostles selected to meet the physical needs of the church. As the church continued to grow um, exponentially, the physical needs of the church continued to grow as well. And so the apostles selected six men who would, in effect, be the first deacons uh, to care for, really to lead in caring for these needs. What's interesting, however, um, is that we really never see the first deacons actually deaconing in Acts. Instead, we see them preaching. We see them evangelizing. We see them telling people about Jesus. And in Stephen's case, this gets him into a whole lot of trouble. When the religious leaders hear that he's been preaching, they arrest him, they put him on trial, and when he preaches to them, they get angry. They get Man, they get furious, so furious that they take him out and they stone him to death. This in turn kicks off the first persecution in church history. And that's what Luke goes on to to detail for us here a little bit more in the first three verses. Notice what he says. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The two things that we need to note here in these verses. First, this persecution plays a huge role in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Uh, You'll remember that the key verse in Acts is found in chapter 1 and verse 8 where Jesus tells his disciples right before he ascends back to heaven that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, we're seven chapters into Acts so far and and the, the disciples haven't left Jerusalem yet. And so God providentially sends persecution which enables Jesus' words to be fulfilled. God uses persecution to accomplish his purposes, something he's repeatedly done throughout history, and he continues to do today. As one example, in the aftermath of World War II, communists uh, took over China. And when they took over China, they kicked all the missionaries out, they banished the Bible, and they began a full-throttled oppression, really a, a, a persecution of Chinese Christians. 
They did this, of course, in an attempt to eradicate Christianity in the country. And it's said that when this persecution began, there were only around one million Chinese Christians. But today, only 70 years later, low estimates are at a hundred million. Hundred million. And that's the kind of thing that God has been doing for many, many years. This is really just one of the examples of how God uses persecution to accomplish his mission of building his church and bringing people from all nations to himself. The second thing we need to note here in these first three verses is that it's not the apostles who carry the gospel to Judea and Samaria, but rather lay people. The apostles remain in Jerusalem, but the rest of the church is scattered. Now, the word scattered is a key word in our text, and the word here means to be sown or planted. It doesn't mean to be scattered and dispersed and gone forever, like you would scatter someone's ashes, but rather scattered like seeds, scattered in order to take root and grow and bear fruit. Note how Luke says these Christians do this in verse four. Now, those who are scattered went about preaching the word. Wherever these persecuted Christians go, they evangelize. That's what the word for preaching here means. It means that these Christians, and note, all of them share the good news about Jesus. Wherever they go, wherever God scatters them, they, in effect, gossip about the gospel. Now, I know that we, we normally think that gossip is a bad thing, but it's not a bad thing when you're gossiping about Jesus, all right? That's what these, these disciples are doing. That's what these Christians are doing. They are gossiping about the gospel. They are speaking about Jesus regardless of where they find themselves. This is a really good place for some early application. And to make it, I'm gonna use a quote from James Boyce. He writes this, wherever you find yourself, whether scattered by work or family or education or some other means, have you considered yourself planted in that place? Have you put down roots and borne fruit for Jesus Christ? That is what these early Christians did. It is because of this activity that even the bad things that had happened to them served to advance the cause of Christ. So I want to ask you today, wherever God has you right now, location, job, school, whatever it may be, wherever it may be, are you putting down roots and bearing fruit for Jesus? Are you, like these Christians in Acts, making the most of whatever situation God has placed or planted you in? He's planted you there so that you'll take roots, you'll put roots down, and then you will bear fruit for him. Let's take a look at an example of how one early Christian makes the most of the situation God plants him in. His name is Philip, and he's another one of those first deacons. He's also the main character in chapter 8, and this week and next, he's going to teach us a whole lot about how to bear fruit for Jesus wherever we find ourselves. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in 
that city. What happens here in Samaria is much more significant than we may at first realize. And that's because the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. Philip's a Jew, and it's really remarkable that he is willing to go to Samaria and to minister to these people. You see, the the Samaritans were half Jew and half Gentile. And so the pure-blooded Jews considered them impure and inferior. The Jews um, just really absolutely hated the Samaritans and, and so much so that they wouldn't even sit on something that a Samaritan had touched. They wouldn't travel through Samaria. Instead, they would take an extra, whole extra day on a circuitous route so that they didn't have to travel through Samaria and even come anywhere close in contact with them. From the Jewish side, it was so bad that a popular prayer in these days said, and Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. In other words, they literally prayed, God, send the Samaritans to hell. Now from the Samaritan side, they pretty much simply reciprocated Jewish animosity as they would cruelly antagonize the Jews in various ways. Examples included attacking Jewish pilgrims on the way to the temple in Jerusalem, as well as launching pigs into the temple on the night before Passover. And there's really a whole lot more to it that really only gets at the beginning of it. But in short, there was a great deal of racial tension between these two groups. And so one of the things that we learn here is that the gospel is the cure to racial conflict. The Jews and the Samaritans were often divided by race, but here in Acts 8, we see them brought together by the gospel. Philip goes to Samaria because he is motivated by the gospel, and the Samaritans receive him as they believe the gospel. Verse 12 makes this clear, where Luke says that as Philip preached the good news about Jesus, the Samaritans believed and were baptized. Now, I want to look a little more closely at Philip's ministry strategy here in Samaria because it provides a great model for how we should seek to reach our cities today. A word about cities here for a minute because you you may think, hey, um, I don't live in a city. Right, and when we hear, um, of course, in Southeast Iowa, think about cities. We, you know, we can think about uh, New York, Chicago, St. Louis. But I did a little research this uh, week, and I went to all the the towns or locations here in Southeast Iowa. You know what I found? Almost all of them are called cities. Burlington's a city. Fort Madison's a city. Danville is a city. Whoa, Danville is a city, right? West Burlington is a city, Minneapolis is a city, all these places are cities. So whether or not you think that you live in a city, most of you actually do live in a city. But the re- really the big point here is, is how do we reach the communities in which we live? And Philip shows us here that he reaches Samaria by ministering to the people there in word and in deed. How do we reach the places in which God has planted us, we do so in word and in deed. In verse five, Luke says that Philip proclaims the Christ to the Samaritans. 
to Christ. This means that he shares those basics of the gospel that we've talked about repeatedly in this series. Repeatedly in Acts, okay? We've seen the apostles and now uh, we see one of the deacons proclaiming the basics of the gospel. So, so Philip goes to the Samaritans and he tells them that Jesus is God, that Jesus died, that he was crucified for their sins, that Jesus rose again, and that if they will place their faith in Jesus, if they will repent of their sins, if they will, they will trust in Jesus, their sins will be forgiven and they will be given eternal life. In short, Philip shares with the Samaritans the life-transforming, the life-changing truths about Jesus. And I just want to emphasize here again that Philip's not an apostle. I think it's really important for us to get this. Nor is he some superstar pastor. He's just an ordinary guy whose life has been transformed by Jesus. And he, as a result, he wants everyone else, even those people he had formerly disdained, to be transformed by Jesus too. Well, that said, it's important for us to see that not only does Philip minister in word, he also ministers in deed. He not only meets spiritual needs, he also meets physical needs. Verse six is a critical verse uh, in our text. It says that people pay attention to what is being said by Philip when they hear him and they see the signs that he performs. Now let's not get distracted by the miracles here because they're not the only way, and I would even say not the primary way to meet physical needs. Chapter four makes this clear. We saw in chapter four that the primary way to meet physical needs is through generosity and practical acts of service. And again, this is something all of us can do. All of us can generously meet the physical needs of those around us. Regardless, here in verse six, we see that Philip's deed ministry is what paves the way for his word ministry. The people pay attention to what he's saying because of what he is doing. Philip's able to meet spiritual needs because he's also meeting physical needs. This is really important for us to grasp. As Philip loves on the Samaritans, as he crosses boundaries that no one else is willing to cross, it opens a door for the gospel. It gives him the opportunity to speak to people about Jesus. And as he speaks to the people about Jesus, and as they believe, we've got to get this, what is the result? Look at verse 8. Luke says, so there was much joy in that city. I want to make sure that you're getting this, all right? Philip is giving us the model for how to do ministry. And how do we do ministry? We meet physical needs, and as we meet physical needs, that's gonna open up doors to meet spiritual needs. And so as we meet those physical needs and those doors open, then we tell people why we are doing the physical needs. We tell them about Jesus and what he has done for us. And as we tell them about what Jesus has done for us, we know that the Holy Spirit is gonna come in and he's going to bring people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And you know what? When that happens, when that happens, then there is great joy in the city. There's great joy in the places where we live. Now, here's a question I have for you. And you, have, you may have never 
consider this question ever, all right? So I'm gonna give you just a little bit of time, but, but a question I want us to wrestle with tonight is, do, do we want to live in places, do we, do we wanna live in a place, in a, in a town, in a city, where there is a lot of joy, where there is a lot of hope, where there is a lot of peace? Is that the kind of place that you want to reside where you want to live. I want to suggest, even if you've never thought of it before, that that is the kind of place where you want to live. You want to live in a community. You want to live around people that are joyful, that are hopeful, that are peaceful. And by the way, here's why I know that's really what you want, even if you don't know that's really what you want. I know it because that's what you were created for. That's what the Garden of Eden was. It was a place of joy. It was a place of hope. It was a place of peace. What's more, that's what heaven will be like. It will be full of hope and joy and peace. Now, we can't get all the way there, all right, here on earth, here right now, but we can make progress in that direction. We can see that in part here, because, and we know that because we, we see that here in Samaria. So how does this happen? How do the, the places where we live, the, the, the neighborhoods, the cities, the towns, whatever it is, the communities in which we live, how do they become places of hope and joy and peace? Well, well they do so as we seek the welfare of those places. They do so as we seek the welfare of our cities. Now, I quoted this verse on the video earlier, but I'm going to go back to it again. Jeremiah 29, 7. All right, God says this to the Israelites who are living in Babylon. They're living in Babylon. He says this, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The word welfare here can also be translated flourishing. God tells the Israelites to seek and pray for the flourishing of Babylon because as it flourishes, so too will they. Here's how this applies to the church. We should seek and pray for the flourishing of the places where we live because as they flourish, so will our church. As we minister to the physical needs of our communities and then use the doors this opens to meet spiritual needs, our communities will flourish. And as our communities flourish, we will as well. As they experience hope and peace and most of all joy, we will experience the same things. We can't separate our flourishing from our community's flourishing. Those two things go together. When our community flourishes, we're gonna flourish. And truly, if we're flourishing and we're following Jesus as we should be, it's gonna result in that spilling over into our community. Now, let's talk about what will be necessary if this is going to be our experience. Actually, let me first say this. I'm grateful that in some measure, this is already true for our church. 
short while ago, I met with a uh, prominent woman in our region who shared with me her appreciation and respect for how our church is involved in the community. I was so thankful to hear what she said, and it was, a, it was a, somewhat of a proud moment for me. And to be honest with you, this isn't all that rare of an occurrence for me. So I can say that, that in some ways, God is already using us to, to bring hope and joy and peace to the communities here in Southeast Iowa. And yet, and yet, brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that God wants to use us to bring a whole lot more. And here's what's necessary if this is going to happen. If there's going to be peace and hope and joy in our cities, we have to pattern our lives after the gospel. We have to pattern our lives after the gospel. Let me explain what I mean here. The pattern of the gospel is that life comes from death. Did you get that? Life comes from death. That's the pattern of the gospel. Jesus came and died for us. And now as a result, we live. We can actually see this pattern here in Acts chapter eight. Stephen dies. And as a result, the Samaritans live. Do you see that? In the text, Stephen sacrifices it all. He, he gives it all. He lays it all on the line. And as a result, the gospel goes to the Samaritans. Of course, this pattern has been repeated throughout the centuries. Countless martyrs like Stephen have given their lives. And as a result, many others have lived. Millions have lived. You and I, listen first, you and I are alive today because others have given their lives. Others have died, and because they have died, we now live. So, you know where I'm going now, right? You can finish the rest of this. I'm not gonna let you, but you could. If those in our communities are going to live, if there's gonna be joy and hope and peace in our cities, we have to be willing to die. We have to be willing to sacrifice so that others can flourish, so that others can be healed, so there can be hope and peace and joy in the places God has planted us. Let me share with you the number one verse that God has been using in my life here in 2020. And uh, when, when, when you see this verse here in a minute, you'll, you'll say, well, that's an appropriate verse for 2020. But it's John chapter 12 and verse 24. And, and this verse has mean, meant so much to me. It's been so convicting to me that I'm actually having it framed and put up in my office. But here's what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Church, if we're going to bear fruit for Jesus, we have to die. We have to die to our sin, to our selfishness, to our comfort, to our fears. But if we do, if we do die, Jesus promises that we will bear much fruit. In dying to ourselves, others will live. And when others live, there will be much joy and peace and hope 
in our cities. Now, I do need to point out, by the way, that in John 12, 24, Jesus is actually first and foremost talking about himself. He's talking about how he's going to die and in doing so bearing much fruit. But it's clear from the, the, the following verses that, that in this, he's actually setting the pattern for his followers. And what, what he's really saying is because I'm dying so that you might live, now you need to go out and die so that others might live. Now you can go out and die that others might live. You are now empowered to die so that others might live. Let me close with a story that perfectly illustrates this. Several weeks ago, I stopped by the friend's house to borrow a lighter. And just to be clear, it was for a grill, not a cigarette. All right, just want to make sure everybody's clear on that. And uh, when I got out of the car, there were a couple kids in the driveway that I didn't know. It turned out that they were a couple of uh, foster children that this family was caring from. And when I got out of the door, uh, out of my car, um, all of a sudden these two kids uh, turned around and they went in the house screaming, the church sermon is here, the church sermon is here. <laughs> they didn't even know my name, but they've been watching me online. I have a new nickname now. But, but here's the, the best part of the story though. The best start of the story is, is that during the quarantine, both of these children under the age of 10 came to profess faith in Jesus Christ. You see, this, this family had met a physical need. And as they met the physical need, that opened the door to meet a spiritual need. Now, I can guarantee you that this required sacrifice from this family I can guarantee you that it required them in some ways to die. That includes not just the husband and the wife, but also the children. Family of six. So, and I can tell you there's some sacrifice involved in that. But in dying, in sacrificing, what happened? They, bear, they bore a lot of fruit. They are bearing a lot of fruit. And that's bringing joy, not only to those children but also to the family. And you know, guess what? It's bringing a lot of joy to us just to hear about it, isn't it? So get this, friends. Life comes from death. Life comes from death. And I recognize and I realize this, that, that our, our flesh, our sinful flesh, is gonna tell us, right? No, 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 you, you can't die. No, you can't do that. You can't sacrifice that. But we just have to realize that it's lying to us and that it's trying to actually keep us from the things that actually bring hope and joy and peace. Life comes from death. That's the pattern of the gospel. Let's go out and live out the pattern of the gospel and see hope and joy and peace in our cities and in our lives. Let's pray.